Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. The best musician I know, and someone for whom I count myself lucky to have been able to play music with, is my buddy James Sewell. He's the type of musician that if you were to give him a week with any instrument, he could probably figure out how to make it sound pretty good. He just has a natural intelligence when it comes to music. I'm pretty sure I knew of James in middle school, but didn't really get to know him until ninth grade when we had a math class together. I had learned that James played trumpet in marching band and thought horns might be cool in the band that my best friend Chris and I were trying to start. So I asked James if he wanted to join, and he said yes. And I guess some time had passed between me asking him to join and the first time we actually played music together, because by that time, I had lost interest in having a horn section and was looking for someone to play keyboards. And I had heard from either my girlfriend at the time or my friend Mark Cotton that James played piano, but I really had no idea of his innate musicality until actually seeing him play. I was in awe. How was someone my age already this good at their instrument? And how had I been so lucky to unknowingly snatch him up before somebody else did? The late great David Berman once said of Silver Juice keyboardist Tony Crow that he could decorate a song like a Christmas tree. And that is exactly what James did to my very simple songs. And I was so grateful for that and for just being able to be in a band with him. He was also a really great bandmate in regards to his willingness to follow along with some of my truly stupid ideas. Like how when we first started playing shows, we would bring an actual upright piano. I mean, you could barely even hear it with the other instruments. But I wanted to be a purist, and James went along with it because that's the kind of guy he is. My happiest memories of being a teenager were the weekly band practices in the workshop behind James's house. Man, I really miss being in that band. I miss the feeling of playing music with my friends, getting locked into a groove, I miss the camaraderie and general silliness. Sure, we had our problems with communication, as all teenage boys do, and I definitely had moments of frustration with my bandmates, and I know they did with me. All bands have their issues, and sometimes it's easier just to do it all on your own. But I do think there is a reason why so many bands reunite, why Dylan eventually went electric, and why Neil Young is constantly returning to Crazy Horse. There's nothing like being in a band. I think the mighty Jason Molina knew this to be true when he first began playing with a group of musicians that would become Magnolia Electric Company. Now, I had known of Molina for many years. Songs Ahia had been recommended to me on more than one occasion, but for whatever reason, I had not ever heard his music until 2005 with the release of Magnolia Electric Company's debut studio album, What Comes After the Blues. I remember hearing the dark don't hide it for the first time, sitting behind the counter of my campus job at Georgia State. I instantly loved it. Coincidentally, this was also around the time I did my first serious immersion into Neil Young. I was reading Jimmy McDonough's Young biography, Shaky, and listening to Powderfinger on repeat. So Magnolia Electric Company caught me just at the right time. I remember shortly after hearing the dark don't hide it, 
finding a copy of what comes after the blues at a Borders bookstore in Atlanta. And after buying it, I got in my car, I put it on, and I listened. This is the story of that record. I'm Jason Evans Growth, and I played guitar and sang a little on What Comes After the Blues. She said, I've been the stockyards pony. She said, I've been the mountain engines roll from Chicago to West Virginia. I've been as lonesome as the world's first ghost. As lonesome as the world's first ghost. My name is Pete Schreiner. I started playing with Molina. But out here, I guess it was the last incarnation, if you can call it that, of Songs Ohio, um, and I was playing drums at that time. But when Mark Rice joined the band, he's a drummer, so I switched to bass. I'm Jenny Benford. I played on What Comes After the Blues. I sang harmonies um, as well as lead on the song that I wrote, and I also played acoustic guitar. This is Jonathan Cargill. I'm one of the founders of Secret Canadian Records. I was also um, a good friend of Jason Lena's, and I was also the project manager for a lot of the projects that Jason was involved with. Jason Molina grew up in northern Ohio and at an early age begins playing music. Eventually, he would begin recording material under various names and in the mid to late 90s would start releasing music under the name Songs Ohio. The majority of these releases would be through the great independent label, Secretly Canadian. Based in Bloomington, Indiana, the label was founded by brothers Chris and Ben Swanson, Eric Weddle, and Jonathan Cargill. In 1996, uh, we decided to, you know, start this record label thing. And then it was shortly thereafter that we met Jason Molina. I mean, he was technically the second release. SCO2 was a seven inch that we release of Jason's. So he was right there from the beginning. It was uh, Chris Swanson, my partner, who made the connection. I th- honestly think Will Oldham released a seven inch of Jason's. And I believe Chris was working at the Indiana University radio station and just fell in love with the songs. And that's ultimately how he first got on our radar is we were listening to that seven inch in the office. Um, and then Jason was playing somewhere. Maybe he was still playing a show up in Oberlin or something, but not too far away from where we were in Bloomington, Indiana. Um, we trekked to go see Jason and just hit him up after the show and started being like, Hey, we're starting this record label. Would you be interested? And I think he kind of him and hawed and, you know, after a while, you know, a couple phone calls and emails later. Like, I, I think he decided to take a chance. And then that's when we released um, that first seven inch. Secretly Canadian was definitely like the label that Melina built at the beginning because he was absolutely the cornerstone. Ever the prolific songwriter and performer, Melina would throughout the late 90s and early 2000s make a number of recordings with each utilizing a revolving group of backing musicians. It is during the recording sessions for 2002's Didn't It Rain that Melina begins working with musician Jenny Benford. I knew Jason at Oberlin College 
Um, I think I must have met him, I don't know, my sophomore year. Uh, we were sort of in this group of friends who all played music. It was the early and mid-90s, and uh, there were just tons of bands at Oberlin. And uh, then it was just a sort of loose group of friends. Jason was living in a house with two of my band members my senior year and we used to rehearse there at Jason's house and that's probably how I got to know him the best and he was already playing a lot then we used to play sort of at the same house parties so I would see him a lot that way you know he would play solo you know and then whatever band I was in would play later after we left Oberlin, he started touring right away. I was living in New York, and I remember he came through with his band. This was probably 1996 or probably 1997. And I went to his show, and I remember talking to him backstage, and we were discussing the Carter family, and he said that he was going to learn all of their songs <laughs> that's a lot of songs <laughs> but I don't know we we just sort of um you know he was he was an enthusiast of all that kind of music and he knew that I was too and so we just we always had bonded over that sort of thing you know just traditional folk music early country music and it may have been that conversation about the Carter family that gave him the idea of us working together I can't remember exactly, but he contacted me about recording Didn't It Rain in Philadelphia maybe a year or two after that. In 2002, Melina and his wife Darcy relocate to Bloomington, Indiana, and it is there that Melina begins working with some of the local musicians. Jason Simmons Growth and Mark Rice and I had a band called Coke Dares. And we were playing around Bloomington. All of us were in other bands as well, uh, some of which were on Secretly Canadian. And he had moved to Bloomington recently from Chicago after doing the Magnolia Electric Company record. And uh, I don't know if he was you know, necessarily looking for a band at the time. It seems to me that Song of the High, as he sort of moved around, you know, he found people wherever he was and you know, th threw something together and made really cool music out of it. And often I think that sort of spur of the moment or um, you know, making the most of what you have or just making magic out of whatever the situation is, whether you're recording into a boombox or at a studio, making that particular session special was something Jason really, I think, enjoyed and made good music out of. Um, so whether he was looking for a long-term band or not, he found some, I, he liked the Coke Dares and asked if Jason and I would want to play with him. I think Mark was still in school, so maybe that was why he wouldn't be able to sort of jump in full-time at that moment. But um that's that's what I remember about how it started. I met Jason right before or right after he recorded Access and Ace. Maybe it was right after. Um, the first time I actually we actually talked, I was alone in a guitar store with him. And I was looking to buy a uh, 1981 Gibson Explorer with gold hardware and a tobacco sunburst finish. And like he talked about his Thunderbird, which he had. For, I mean, we just talked about forever. It, I mean, that dude just talked and I didn't really know him. And then he told me who he was. And I like, I guess I had seen him because I must, I'd seen him play, but I like never talked to him. And he seemed so much bigger when you saw him play. But then when he's like standing behind a guitar store counter, I was like, oh, it's just a, like a little dude who talks a lot. 
so I met him around then. And then we just were buds kind of like at least pleasant to each other. So he left. So we met, we kind of got to know each other. And then he was in Chicago and in other places. I can't mean there was like a whole litany of places where they moved, but then he moved back to Bloomington in 2002. There was this festival in Bloomington called Bloomington Fest that would happen in August, right before school would start. And I saw Jason backstage or wherever, back building, wherever we were. And, um, uh, but like he had moved back to town and like, it seemed like he, he suggested that we hang out and like, um, he wanted to, uh, he wanted me to hear his new record. It's like, Oh, that's awesome. You know? And so remember that night he, uh, he played, he played a great show. It was mostly didn't rain material. It was him alone. Um, and he was playing this amp that he, at some point in our life together, he gave to me, which is like the, the sound of didn't it rain. It's amazing. It's this Fender deluxe reverb, like 71 deluxe reverb that has this kind of fucked up speaker that makes everything blow out a little bit more and sound like it's kind of in a reverb tank filled with mud. Um, and so he was playing that. And I just remember just being blown away by it, by the show. And then he, he never did encores. He came back out and did a like a little bit of out on the weekend by Neil Young. And I was totally in the throes of my, like the first time I'd ever been truly obsessed with Neil Young. And um, I was like, fuck, I had no idea. Like, I, like all that time of listening to his music before, I didn't get the Neil Young root stuff. You know, I just didn't hear it. And it was Didn't It Rain that made me hear it because that record is basically on the beach. But like, um, I think afterwards uh, I said something like, I think I may have said to him, like, man, if you, you know, like I'm in a Neil Young album cover band and uh, I think we're going to do tonight's tonight in like three or four weeks. You should come see it. Um, and so I think he and I saw each other a couple of times, but then he came to that show, saw us play tonight's tonight and legend has it. Cause he was, he was there with Chris Swanson, one of the heads of secretly Canadian. Legend has it that he looked at Chris at some point during the show and said, that's my new band. The band would begin playing shows towards the end of 2002 and would tour extensively in different configurations throughout the next year. That whole year, the band changed several times. So it's in, in the spring of that year, it was me and Pete and Jason plus uh, Aaron Deere playing bass. And then in Europe, Aaron got swapped out from Mike Kapanis on bass and Mikey ends up playing keys later the year. But so like the trials and errors record is like the, the core of Magnolia right then, but we're, we were touring as songs of Ohio. And like, there's a tour where it's Pete and Mike Brenner, the lap steel player and Jason. So it's drums, lap steel and guitar. There's a tour where it's that configuration plus Mikey. And then right before 2000, right before October, when, when songs of Ohio goes on what ends up being the last tour under that name, which was a total, like a month long tour of Spain, um, that's when the, like the Magnolia electric company band that we then recorded under forever became the band. So I knew uh, all the guys, Jason, Mike Kapanis, Mark Rice and Pete Schreiner. Um, I knew all those guys really well, um, just because we were all buds in Bloomington. Um, and then of course, all those guys were in other bands and other bands that secretly Canadian worked with and just just being around but when we first saw melina play with this group of guys i think we all kind of knew like that was going to be the band (laughs) it just it really clicked 
the other incarnations of Songs Ohio were fantastic. Um, but there's just something about uh, the, I guess, the rapport or the connection or whatever it is. But when these guys got on stage together, you could tell, like, this was going to be the band. In the fall of 2003, Molina would also make a significant decision that would somewhat confuse both his bandmates and label. In August of that year, I read on Pitchfork that the name of my band has changed from Songs Ohio to Magnolia Electric Company. I didn't hear this from Jason. I just read about it. And so I'm like, well, that's a confusing way to live out the rest of the year. And like all my fears about joining the band are sort of have sort of come true at this point. Like, fuck, I'm going to ruin his music. Um, I'm going to ruin, we're going to ruin his fan base, whatever. These were his decisions. And I think he made that decision without telling us, which is a classic Molina thing to do, but also because I think he, uh, he would say this later, at least like he like felt like we were going to solidify as a band. He wanted a band. He wanted to like play with the same people and like develop a thing while it felt a little weird and like, um, sort of not underhanded, but like just sneaky, (laughs) like also confusing to everybody. Um, I think he did it for the right reasons. Anyway, so we get back from Spain and then we're on tour in America as Magnolia Electric Company. And we added Jenny Benford on that tour and the flyers for that tour were insane. It was like Jason Molina of Songs Ohio with his new band, Magnolia Electric Company. So many words to try and explain. I'm sure the promoters were just freaked out by it because they booked it. They booked Songs Ohio so long ago. Um, When Jason first wanted to change the name of the band, we were all concerned for sure and then you know to take it a step further it was the same name of the last songs ohio album so like there's a lot of things that were confusing <laughs> um probably not to jason i'm sure this was all part of his plan but ultimately it it really made sense um not saying that songs ohio went as far as you could go because definitely uh with that last songs ohio album the Magnolia Electric Company, you know, was probably by far one of its best albums. But it, when we finally it settled in and we realized this was going to happen, we fully embraced it and, in fact, championed it because, I don't know, it just, it just seemed right. There's a turn in Jason's style of music, and it really made sense to change the name, mm-hmm. and especially that he was going to be a band from there on out, so it made sense that you changed the name. Throughout the various tours of that year, the band would focus on and develop new material, rather than play songs from Molina's extensive back catalog. Well, that was typical of uh, Jason Molina. Um, <laughs> he, would, he would contact me and say, all right, here's the plan. And he would sort of lay out what we were going to do, and so I would sort of try to prepare and then I would show up and it was pretty different <laughs> than what he said <laughs> which was fine you know it was, it was interesting when we actually started practicing I kind of I assumed that our practices were going to you know be largely the Magnolia Electric Company material since he you know that band didn't really exist it, the band that recorded Magnolia Electric Company was comprised of a bunch of people that Jason had played with over the years, you know? And I think like at the time his like kind of solid Chicago band with extra players, but like the band as a whole didn't actually ever play those songs live ever. Like they only did them in the studio. So like, I just kind of assumed that he was looking for a band to do that material. And we sure, like we did learn 
got a couple like he just kind of assumed we would know it um which was a cool way to learn how to be in a band is like here's the record do your homework you know um thing thing was he wasn't really doing his homework so like often he wouldn't know how the songs went and we would and and so but that was neither here nor there so we learned a little bit of that material and we learned didn't it rain but mostly he just showed up at those practices with the stuff that would end up being uh, what comes after the blues. I remember practicing all the Magnolia songs so that I would know what I was doing on those. And then he sent some of the new ones. You know, we rehearsed a little bit in the hotel room. I think I, I think just Jason and I, Jason uh, Sparky, Jason Molina. I keep calling him Sparky. That's what we all used to call him in college. But yeah, Jason, Jason Molina and I, we're in the hotel room sort of going through the songs. And I kind of noticed then that we didn't, he didn't really mention anything about the Magnolia songs. We were mostly working on the new ones. And um, yeah. And then we played the first show and we didn't do any of the old songs and it was all the new ones. We had dark. Don't hide it. We had um, like leave the city at shows up sometime that year. Um, we're, we're on the road before the Magnolia electric, Co record comes out and we're only playing new stuff except for maybe two or three songs from didn't it rain most of the time molina had a bunch of new songs that he was excited about and that's what we'd be playing on tour often to the audience's chagrin because they wanted to you know they wanted to hear the awesome songs from the last album just like i would have as a fan um and sometimes that caused strife you know and sometimes it caused funny outbursts not outbursts but reactions from molina on stage I got I got slapped by a person in in Italy because we didn't play the lioness. And I remember like being at the merch table and she came up and she said, you know, you know, you didn't play the lioness and hit me. And I like and I was like, I'm I'm sorry. Like we we don't really know that one. Like we, we've never we've never practiced that one. Like, you know, these are the songs we know. Uh, a lot of times I would be working the merch table after the show and inevitably somebody would come up and tell me their their story about how they drove seven hours and we didn't play the lioness and in, in my mind i'm like yeah you know I, or or i would say you know i feel for you you know i'm a fan i love that song too also i see it from jason's side you know he's excited about this new music let's share this new music together it's not even recorded yet isn't that special too <laughs> jason uh, you know it's not that he didn't care about his fans he did i mean he he just i don't know he he was just very pure about his artistic process and he trusted his fans to sort of follow him on whatever he was going to do. Also, later, when we would ask him about playing an old song, um, I remember one time he said, like, I think it was about the song The Lioness. And we started practicing it. And he broke down mid-practice mid song, crying. And he's like, I lived it. So it wasn't just about, like, I don't want to play this song for the 500th time, it was also, you know, his songwriting often was very personal and emotional, and I kind of saw the, the whole picture of that in that moment. The first official release under the new band name would be the live album Trials and Errors, which was recorded in Brussels while the band was still touring under the name Songs Ohio. For their studio recording debut, the band works with legendary artist and engineer Steve Albini an important figure in underground music starting in the 1980s with his influential band Big Black. Albini has worked on a number of recordings, including seminal works by Pixies, Nirvana, 
the Breeders, and more. They had made two records before What Comes After the Blues, one of which I don't think has ever been released. Or maybe, I, I, I really don't know. One of them is a something he did in 2001, maybe? Uh, it doesn't matter. And then the Magnolia Electric Company record. Steve is one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Then the studio, God, what a, it's, working with him is so easy. Like, I think that's what Jason liked about him, is that, like, Steve, Steve is not pretentious. He is not at all. That dude is the like one of the least pretentious people I've ever met in my life. And I and Jason was attracted to people like that. I mean, Jason had his own pretensions, but I think at the heart of it was like was a pretty he at least was struggling with the idea that he wanted to be a star, but he also knew that he was just like a guy, you know? I think that like he would feel bad sometimes when people like Bill Callahan or Will Oldham would get more press than he would because he knew that his songs were as, as canon as theirs. But like, but it became this sort of like cool guy versus nerd battle in his brain all the time, you know? So like Jason's this quiet dork who's like, you know, kind of short and has a unibrow. Whereas like Will Oldham is, you know, who's a, Will is a great guy, but Will is this like this good looking eccentric dude who's an actor. And Jason couldn't understand why he wasn't as cool as those guys. You know, like, I think that was that was real. And he was. The thing is, he was. And it's like that struggle we all go through where it's like, do we want the approval of other people or do we want to just believe that what we're doing is integral? And I think that that Jason saw that in Steve as like Steve seems to not give a fuck, like for better or worse in the in the music that he makes. And then um, is also like, look, I'm not going to tell you what to do with your music. I'm going to engineer your record and it's going to sound good. And, you you know, you're going to be in a nice, comfortable studio. I know what the fuck I'm doing. Um, if you're good at being a band, you will be good at making a record with me. Like that's the whole thing. And so Jason would go to him because Jason felt like he was good at making music and he could do it quickly. And then Steve could capture it appropriately. And they got along really well. Like there was so much mutual respect there. And God, I'm so grateful that Jason like had us in the studio with him. You know, this is a guy who's worked with the best some of the best musicians who exist continues to has one of the best recording studios in the world. And I was a guitar player in a band that recorded with him three times, you know? And so there was just this incredible mutual respect that I think was rooted in a lack of pretension and uh, like the need to just create what felt like was integral at the time. Yeah. And as, and you know, not as quickly as possible because you had other shit to do, but like just because the immediacy of the music or whatever had to get out. So Steve is that person. If you have an immediate music need, Steve will get it. He will get it and it will sound the way that your band sounds. For the recording sessions, the band travels to Chicago to work at Albini Studio Electrical Audio. That space is really great, especially if you stay in the building, in the, the little bedrooms. Because um, then you can go basically 24 hours a, a day if someone's not in the other studio spaces and go practice, um, write songs, make noise mess around um so it's a nice working environment you can just sort of have the run of the space make your own coffee cook your own food sort of live there and that just takes you know one level of intimidation of being in the studio way at any time you have your own space your own bed you can go chill steve is also sort of you know known for capturing the sound in the room which can be a good feature um he's got his jumpsuit so it's very much about like you know, we're working, uh, I say the jumpsuit is like a coverall with the electrical audio logo on it. But it's very much, also since Steve lives in the building, it's probably a way for him to say, okay, I'm not home now, I'm at work. 
So it's a very sort of work person like environment there. I think Jason respected um, the ability to just get up early in the morning, right, and then just walk into the studio and, and cut something maybe that was just brand new, for instance, to hammer down. So anyway, the ability to jump between sort of like off-duty and on-duty really quickly. Uh, obviously, lots of great gear there, um, nice spaces, aesthetically pleasing building, visually and, and sound-wise. Um, and we're working on two-inch tape, which is nice. I guess at the time, a lot of studios were probably still doing tape more so than now. But that place, at the time, if you wanted to do digital, you had to bring in your own Pro Tools rig or something. They just weren't, you know, they were completely outfitted for analog, which I think we were into. And those records that we did on, well, most of the records we did were on tape. And, you know, if you if you end up listening to it on vinyl, it has an almost 100% analog workflow. If that's important to you, you know, that's that's sort of a neat feature. And then they made a record. Featuring dynamic interplay between electric and steel guitar, with electric piano, a steady rhythm section, and wonderful harmonies between Molina and Benford, what comes after the blues opens with the dark don't hide it. And much like it did as the opening track for Trials and Errors, the song acts as a great introduction to the new direction of Molina's music. Well, it was interesting because the album Magnolia Electric Company was such a classic album um you know with the really iconic album art by will schaff and then the you know the songs farewell transmission and all that stuff like not hits so to speak because jason didn't really have hits but in our little world a lot of yeah, his definitely. hits came off of that album <laughs> but you know i actually think about this because I was listening to what comes after the blues just the other day and it opens up with like what I think is you know one of the most recognizable and iconic riffs that Jason had in the song you know the dark don't hide it riff and I think what comes after the blues has some of his best songs so dark don't hide it was the first song that what became Magnolia Electric Company ever learned together. We wrote it together in a, in a studio called The Projects in Bloomington, Indiana. I can't remember the date, but it was sometime like November of 2002. Um, and uh, what I remember was 
Jason playing those chords, like the A minor C G thing. And um we just sort of like played around with that. Like it's it's basically two sections of a song. Um it's the A minor C G for the choruses and then G D C, which is such a classic thing for the verses. And so we're just sort of playing around and then like in classic Molina fashion, um, I think he was just like, All right, let's record it. And I was like, well, why don't we like add an intro or something? Let's figure out how to start this. And I suggested that whatever that that riff is, you know, kind of doing it pretty hard too, because I, I felt like the song, I don't know, it was, it was totally into Neil Young. So I was like, this can, let's make this sound like that. Like what I feel like he would do. What would Neil do? <laughs> this is what Neil would do. Um, so yeah, so like that opening uh, what's that fierce a minor right there at the beginning was like what i you know when jason approved it i felt like i i could be in the band the thing about recording what comes after the blues was that we had just been on tour before the recording which was a very different situation than the two other albums that i had recorded with jason those other times we just sort of went in the studio and sort of worked things out in the studio with what comes after the blues, at least the first half of the album, um, we had played them on tour. And so everything had been worked out on stage and we all kind of knew what we were doing. You know, we'd played them in sound check and, you know, over and over and over, you know, that song was just pretty tight by the time we recorded it. And that song is just a good example. Like, I feel like that was just really strong. And we just knocked it out in a couple takes. And we all knew what we were doing. And, you know, I my harmonies I'd worked out. Some of Jason's songs were easier than others to sing harmony on. And, yeah, I mean, of all the things I do musically, the thing that I love the most is just kind of the alchemy of singing harmony with whoever I'm singing with. Mm-hmm. You know, Jason's voice is is so distinct. But some of the songs were challenging to sing harmony on. You know, so, some of them, you know, I grew up, you know, with folk music and bluegrass music and, you know, where there's a chorus and it's just easy to sort of jump in on that harmony when the chorus comes in. But it was a little more challenging with some of Jason's songs even though his voice was easy to harmonize with. It's a really strong voice, and he sings high, so that made it easier. It wasn't easy singing with him, but it was really it was really rewarding. Mike Brenner, the lap steel player, and I had worked out in order to keep the song like tighter because there were so many people in the band and to keep it from like meandering off into just endless solo territory, which it often would do. Um, he and I worked out like little we worked out some parts that happen between the choruses that are, that I, I, it's like a pretty, it's like a harmonized guitar and lap steel thing. And then it's me playing the solos at the end. Yeah, that's me. That's like the thing I do. It's just like screaming. There are two parts of this record that are two, like, I can remember them happening in the studio. And, like, this great relief. Like, when that solo at the end happens, I remember feeling like, oh, 
yeah, I, I nailed it. We're not going to have to do this again. And we're recording, you know, we're recording at Albini's on 24 track, two inch tape. So like, and everything is live. There are very few overdubs on this record. Um, so uh, it's just, you know, it's me and Pete and Mike Brenner in one room, Mark in the drum room, Jenny and Jason and Mikey in the big live room. And like, so you're just hoping, you know, you're hoping I, my headphones fell off during that solo. So I really had to just listen to the, to the, the just the amps in the room to figure out where it ended. Um, Jason never talked to us about lyrics. He never talked to really anybody about lyrics. Jason was really worried about America at the time. <laughs> and as, as I mean, I think we all still are since then. Uh, like, so I often, I mean, he, and he hated as we all did and still do. He hated George Bush. Uh, and like, and what, like, you know, I think he felt a real disappointment that America's totally messed up all the goodwill that was given to it because of the terrorist attacks. Like we had every opportunity to just like, you know what, hey everyone, let's all get together. We're this let's lead by being nice to one another. And instead we just alienate everybody. And I feel like a lot of the lyrical themes from those songs have to do with his disappointment in humans behaving indecently. There was a lot of anger, um, especially in the early 2000s in the songs Jason was writing. And I think Dark Don't Hide It, since it was written so much earlier than the rest of the songs on the record, is more of a, like, is less along the lines of like the love songs when the songs about like his mental health, which I think he'd been writing like the years prior. And like Dark, Dark Don't Hide It is the last of a very small group of political songs he wrote after 9-11 and through like the end of 2002. Benford's Night Shift Lullaby, and other than being a great song, it also has the distinction of being the only time the band would include a track on a full-length album written by someone other than Melina. I mean, the way it came about that he ended up recording my song is um, when we started the tour, he's like, well, maybe you should open the show with like two or three of your songs, just playing solo. And he kind of threw that out there. And so I was sort of thinking what songs I'd written recently that might work with a rock band. You know, I'd just written Night Shift Lullaby. And that song came from, I had this temp job at this factory that made plastic hotel keys. (laughs) This is in Asheville, North Carolina. And they put me on the night shift. You know, I was young enough where I could do that at the time. <laughs> I could never do that now. I mean, the reason I, I kept that temp job was because they would let me go on tour for a month and then come back and I could work again. So anyway, they put me on the night shift for, I think it was just a couple weeks. 
And so, yeah, I, I just, I wrote that song just, just from actually working that night shift, which was really strange and difficult. But anyway, so I had written that song, you know, with fiddles and banjos in mind. But, you know, there's something kind of Neil Youngish about it. You know, Jason was kind of hounding me when we started the tour. He's like, yeah, why don't you open up the show with a couple of your songs? And so I think we must have been sort of sound checking. And he was like, well, why don't you play something of yours? And so I started playing that song and the band just sort of jumped in. And uh, and then after we stopped, the guys were like, oh, that's really fun to play. So <laughs> So we started playing it at the shows. And then, I don't know, we had just been playing it on tour. And so we just decided to record it. So it just sort of happened kind of accidentally. And, you know, Jason Molini, you know, he was spontaneous like that. I think he, he, he was sort of tickled by the idea of throwing somebody else's song on his album. I know it was an honor, really. I mean, I, it was an honor at the time. And it's still, it's, uh, it's just amazing to me that I got to do that. I think we all just really liked playing it. I think Jason liked, like we all, it was like five shows into that tour when suddenly the whole band was doing it. And, um, you know, like show six or whatever at Soundcheck, I was like, why don't we do like an Eagles style breakdown for this last chorus? You know, like we've got a bunch of singers in the band, but why don't we just do it? And Jason was totally into that. He really wanted to be in a band. I think he like, he wasn't good at being in a band. And that may sound weird because I think we were all, I think we were a really good band. He was really good at playing solo. One of the most captivating solo performers I've ever seen. And I think sometimes it was hard for him to just like lose himself inside of another thing, like a band. So when someone else is playing the song and he gets to like be the guitar player, I think it made him really excited. I mean, he and Jenny were so close. And I think he really counted her as, and, and you know, did until we stopped playing as like the perfect collaborator. She was so easy to work with and such a talent. And I thought the recording, I love that recording. I think it turned out really well. We did two takes of the song and we were listening back and there was a part of it that really bothered me. You know, we do the whole thing live, um, you know, singing while the whole band is playing. Plenty of mistakes in there. <laughs> but there was one that I just was like, oh. And also, too, Steve records to tape, so hard to edit, right, in theory, or that's how it seemed at the time. And so I remember asking Steve, can we fix that part, even though this was live and to tape? And he said, the answer to any question beginning with can is yes. (laughs) So that's what he was like. He was just like, yes, we can do that. And he he did it. He just... He fixed it. I mean, he's he's just such a pro. We record the basic tracks. That song actually had overdubs in it. All the backing vocals were overdubbed. And the backing vocals are me and Mikey, I think. Just me and Mikey maybe doing two passes of us singing together. And, uh... And it was one of those moments, like, I don't know, day two of the three or four day recording studio session with Steve. Mikey and I are singing it, and like, I, I told him, I was like, Steve, can you, you know, can you go back and you give us another track with both of us on it that we can harmonize with? And we did it and kind of nailed it. And 
and Steve through the talkback mic says, gentlemen, that was the bee's knees. And that was, I think it was the first time I'd ever heard anyone use that phrase in the 21st century. And I was like, I was so relieved because I admire him so much that he was into the Eagles style harmonies that we were doing on Jenny's song. beautiful and melancholic trumpet leads, the country rock tinged lead the city as a standout track on a record full of standout tracks and contains one of my all-time favorite opening lines. I love Leave the City, and I love it because it's just so breezy in this, like, you know, I, so Pete was a contractor, and, like, we would always hire Pete to to help us build stuff in our house. I remember Pete um, installing a sink in a house in Bloomington, Indiana, for my wife and I, and um, putting in the faucet, and Pete said something like, you can always tell it's a good faucet if when you're installing it, it feels like you really didn't have to do anything. And I think about that a lot when I'm playing music. And when I'm playing Leave the City, it doesn't feel like I'm doing anything. Like the song's just sort of like, it's so well built that my hands just go where they need to go. There's no thought. It's just like, it's just flowing. I remember the first time he played it for us, I was like, Jesus Christ, man, like this is, this is like song that will live forever, you know? And you're giving us the the gift of letting us be the band that plays it. it was like, I still feel that way. Leave the city. I, it was just a joy to play that one on stage. It's just, um, it's just such a great song, you know, and, and Mikey playing trumpet. But I, I just remember how easily that song came together while we were on tour. And again, you know, having played it night after night on tour, it just, we just recorded it really smoothly and easily. I think we all think it's about leaving Chicago. Talk about he talks about being on the highway, which I assume is about touring. You know the part about hard to, to know you waited. You know the assumption it'd be is about Darcy. You know it's not explicit, which is what I like about it. Still a little bit of a mystery. It could be about somebody else. It could be you know fictional person writing this. But I like the you know of all the great reasons for leaving. Now I can't think of any. You know at the time it seemed like a good idea. Why did I do it? sort of the light regret or heavy regret, which you can apply to a lot of things, which is what the, you know, the, the vagueness is helpful for. Hearing the lyrics, I was like, it was uh, hearing them at practice in Pete Schreiner's basement. Um, I was like, wow, Jason's like revealing a lot about being sad about moving away from Chicago. Like it came out, you know, that song was written right after he'd moved back to Bloomington. 
And uh, I think the second thing I thought was like, I wonder what his wife thinks about this. <laughs> like, like she, like he's like I think because I remember him. Like I remember there being personally like something where where he didn't want to be in Chicago anymore, and so she um, found a job in Indianapolis so they could move back to Bloomington. And then he's writing songs about how it broke his heart, and like it must have been confusing for her. But the the melody is perfect. Like it's got a great. It just flows so well. Um, and I think, you know, early on, like it would just fall into like solo territory, like lots and lots of solos, mostly featuring trumpet. By the time we got to the bigger band configuration, you know, we added Jenny, who was playing acoustic guitar, which really sold it out. And then Mike Brenner, Mikey and me would sort of split up the solos. So to this day, whenever I get to hear this recording and like I feel really lucky whenever I like, it's, like randomly on the radio or wherever. I love that guitar solo. I love my guitar solo in the song so much. I went, I remember the feeling when I did it, like just this feeling of utter, just this utter relief and like almost validation. It's like, fuck, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good guitar player. That was a really good solo. <laughs> like, I was so worried about ruining the song. And like, we, we had done this, we had done like three or four takes, and like nothing was coming together. And when it was done, just this huge weight off my shoulders about like, okay, I didn't, I'm not the one who screwed this up uh, if, if it ends up being screwed up. And also I really like that. I love that solo. There was some question about like that. It was either that version that ended up on the record or the version or the, the take we had done before it. And the take we had done before it solo wasn't nearly as good. It was less melodic, blah, blah, blah. And like, I don't think I said anything. I just think I let Jason choose. And I think he chose the take that we, that we put on there because he liked the solo too, or at least he told me that. And he may have just told me that to make me feel better. But yeah, so recording it, I'm just, when, when we got that take and that solo happened, like it's hard, I'm smiling thinking about it right now. Like I just, it's one of the few times in, in, in a recording where I just felt like I did that exactly the way, like I'm not, I'm not going to do that any better. I hope that's the take. <laughs> The skillfully arranged Hard to Love a Man is a brooding number that continuously builds as it weaves in subtle textures of steel guitar and mellotron, all the while being anchored by finger-picked guitar and a subdued rhythm section. And as the band approaches its end, the dynamic slightly shifts, allowing all the moving parts within the song to really shine, especially the beautiful harmonies between Molina and Benford. started playing that at, at sound checks in Spain and we kind of 
would mess around with it with him. And then between the Spanish tour and the American tour as Magnolia Electric Company, he'd sort of fleshed it out. I'm trying to remember the name. It's on an Instagram post I put on, up a long time ago. There was a name. That song was called something else that's really weird. I'm going to look because you need to know this because uh, this is a cool factoid. One second. So I'm looking at this picture of a set list that um, Jenny Benford brought when we all got together again and played some shows a couple years ago. And then the name of Hard to Love a Man on that list is Big Store. And I have no idea why. So anyway, we start playing it like full band on that tour. Um, what I remember was it just felt like like that riff and everything about it was just a good song, like haunting and well-written and the harmonies with him and Jenny are just perfect. Like it was one of the few times I saw him not really adjust his, his melody. Like he had na- nailed that melody and just sang it the same way every time. That song is interesting because, you know, I said earlier that a lot of his songs could be difficult to harmonize with. And when I was rehearsing all of the songs he sent me before I met up with them, that was one where it was really easy. You know, the, it was, the harmony part that I did on there, you know, I just, like, first or second time I heard it, I just um, knew what I wanted to do. And it sounded awesome to me. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I love this song. And then when I met up with Jason and we were in the hotel room before the first show and sort of running through everything. He was like, "Eh, I'm thinking of scrapping that song. And I was like, no, you can't. I love it. And I was because I, you know, it was like one of the ones that was so easy to harmonize with. And I was like, let's just try it. And so we sang it and he was like, okay, well, let's try it. We'll do it. And so we ended up playing playing it you know on the tour you know and I had worked out the guitar part too you know like the little finger picky part or whatever so I had like worked on that song a bunch and I was kind of invested in it and so um in some ways I feel like he kind of out of kindness to me decided not to scrap that song <laughs> so so uh, that's kind of how that came about but I still just, that's one of my favorite songs. I don't know if, if he wanted to scrap it because it was just a shade maybe too personal or something. I mean, it's it's crazy to say that because all of his songs are so personal. He seemed cagey about that song. Maybe it, he didn't feel like it was finished. I don't know why he thought he wanted to scrap it. But I'm really glad that he didn't. We walk into the studio that first day and there's a Mellotron in the library that I think was kind of broken. And um, and so all of us decided that we had to put it on something. Like, it had to be on a song. And I think it was decided pretty early that Hard to Love a Man would be the song that the Mellotron was played on. Maybe everybody doesn't know what a Mellotron is, but you know it's a keyboard. It is where you play like a piano, 
with keys, but it's not it's not hitting anything. It's not hitting strings like a piano. It's playing tape loops, like literal, you know, pieces of physical tape that are cut together. And so those degrade over time. And I don't remember when the Melotrons came out. I want to say 60s or 70s. But the tapes were degraded, so people were getting them retaped with modern tape, which which is fine, but it doesn't necessarily sound exactly the same. But uh, from what I remember, this was the last session at Electrical before the machine got retaped. Those are always sort of like they have the real analog sounds coming off the tape, but I, you know, they're if you listen on headphones, you can hear that there's some scrunkiness and some noise in those in that Mellotron, which I really like. So Jim Grabowski, who played on the Magnolia Electric Co. record, um, he was called in, and I think was the person who played the Mellotron takes, which were overdubbed. Everything else was live, but those were overdubbed. Yep. But yeah, great song. I love that recording. There's something about that song, like when the drums finally come in like fully at the end, it's like also a huge sense of relief and uh, kind of what a great, it's just a great sounding recording, I think. Oh, I'll say this. The whole time I'm playing my 1974 Telecaster Deluxe, and I'm using a MXR Distortion Plus, and that's it, that and a tuner, um, through a 79 Marshall, uh, no master 50-watt head, which was the dime. I can't believe I used that, you know, but I'm so glad I did, because it sounds, I think, especially cool on Hard to Love a Man, where it's just sort of like kind of British breaking up with like all the finger picking stuff I'm doing. Um, I would never, ever, ever, I've never since that recording ever used that amp on a recording ever. I just like, it was just too stupid. So, um, and Jason hated Marshall, so I don't know why he even let me, but uh, whatever, you live and learn. last track on what comes after the blues to feature the entire band is give something else away every day the song's weariness is thematically befitting and with its long fade in the track has a sort of late night early morning vibe as if the listener has been slowly approaching some bleary-eyed bar band that's just been continuously jamming on the same song for some time to give it away Born to give it away I'll take to my like the idea that when you fade in or fade out on something it's like i wonder how much has been going on before or how much will continue to go on after this happened you know like at the end of cinnamon girl for example like i wonder how long neil young is in there playing that thing that he's playing at the end of that song because i know it sounds like he's done but i bet he keeps playing that i bet he keeps doing that for like 20 minutes or at least i want to believe he does so uh, 
this song, I think the lyrics are cool. And I think it's like, I think, I just feel like the arrangement was wrong. I feel like we never got this one right. It's just so long. Like, and I feel like it's kind of unlike the rest of the songs on the record. It's kind of tuneless. It just builds too much. The end of it's cool. Like the one, like the fade in's cool. And then the, there's a line in it that I like. It's the only, it's only the moon that breaks. It's not your heart is a cool line. Um, and I think the part there, like, that's when the song gets okay. Like there's some harmonies that come in. Mark plays a cool little drum thing to emphasize that line. I think all, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I always felt like all of us were just waiting for that to happen because we knew the end of the song was coming. If we got to that point, another thing that I don't love about that song is that I think that's one of those moments where Jason's like, Jason was a generous person who, um, like I said, was, was, pretty unpretentious, but like, I think that's one of those moments where he seems to be almost whining about not being more popular. Like I, I feel like him saying born to give it away is like, he just is, is like, I mean, it, there's, there's a personal interpretation where he is giving a lot of himself and like not feeling like he's getting much back. And I think that was something that he struggled with. And I think it's a legitimate feeling. I mean, it's like depression is, you know, could be defined as that, I, I suppose. But like, um, I also kind of thought about him, like just want, thinking he needed to make more money. Like when we ever played that song, I was like, God, man, yeah, maybe we do deserve more than what we get acclaim for or whatever. But like, you don't have to write a song about it. No, I don't know if either of those interpretations are real. Um, I just hated playing it, and I was really relieved when we never, ever, ever played it again after we recorded it. <laughs> I don't think we played it once after 2003 because I think everybody knew. And so what's weird to me is there's a ton of songs that we did cut that didn't make it to this record. And that one is on it. And then like when I, when I heard the master of what comes after the blues was like, why did we put this song on here? I just always assumed it would be a B side. Like, I think we just did it cause we knew it. And I was surprised that it ended up that way. I can't wait to hear what other guys in the band think about that. But to me, that song is just this like laborious, like, Hey, you you just had four great songs. Now you have to pay your dues by listening to this one. It maybe wasn't one of my super favorites. I didn't hate it, but um, I think all I do is like sit there and play guitar on it. But yeah, it it was a long song and it's sort of a heavy song. But, you know, I have to say one of my favorite um, guitar solos that Jason Gross played is on that song. I just love his playing on that. It's just like it's so crunchy and awesome like you know just his little fills and i don't know that's <laughs> funny that he hated it because i that was like my favorite part about the song you know um a week ago that was my take too and it was it was during a time i think we had there were a lot of medium tempo or slower tempo songs with maybe four chords and sort of lugubrious and on an off night or something, if we're playing like three or four of those back to back, they could sort of start to run together, sort of my mind. And I could, you know, maybe being part of the, the band, you know, not be focusing on the lyrics or something like that. But so now when I when I bump this record a couple of times in preparation for this, um, I really like the song. Definitely a lot more than I used to. And I think that's probably the most Neil Youngish one. I could see it just sort of popped onto on the beach or something. Sometimes we'd be play, staying at somebody's house on tour and, you know, sort of as a thank you or 
or whatever. He would record them a couple songs and just leave them on a cassette or give them to somebody. And the, so that sort of born to give it away, I think sort of in my mind ties in with that whole thing. Like I'm here now, here's a song from right now in this room. Maybe I just wrote it. Maybe it's a, you know, just this version and now it's out of me and now it's out in the world. I think Jason sort of did that generally. He would be sort of out in the world, finding interesting little trinkets on the ground, finding a bird feather, putting, making that into a little bit of art, leaving it at somebody's house, or putting that up in the van, or whatever. So, so things come in and they go away. Where were the rest of my songs tonight? I only remember the North Star Blues That simple old tune on the stage each night Marking the time that I lost you No one should forgive me I knew what I stood to lose I better off now Just forgetting how I came to earn North Star Blues As we near the end of the record, we get the sparingly arranged North Star Blues, a song that in a way harkens back to the sounds of some of Molina's earlier works. And like she does on so many of the songs of this record, Benford enhances Molina's already amazing voice. Strong voices need one another in order for it to work. In Benford, much in the way that Emmylou Harris was to Graham Parsons, is the perfect partner to Molina's distinct vocal style. song's beautiful and sad and so well written like it's just it is it is maybe my favorite part of that whole record the harmonies are perfect and the way that the harmonies change with the chords changing underneath it because he's singing the same melody over different chords twice it's just perfect it's a perfect song god the first time i heard it was day we made trials and errors um he had done uh a belgian radio show and um he came to the club where we made Trials and Errors and played the CD of this song. I was like, Jesus, man, this is an amazing song. Like, can we learn it? You know? And we never quite did. I don't think he really knew it that well. And like, I think sometimes when stuff was really complicated, 
he would get kind of embarrassed about not remembering it and get frustrated. And then we would stop. I was so thrilled. It was the last day of recording. It was, you know, like me and Jenny and Mike Brenner and Jason and Dan McAdam, who was in um, Songs of Haya before we were playing fiddle. He played fiddle on uh, Hold On Magnolia also. And he also played bass on that record and guitar. I think he played everything on that record. Uh, it's all live. It's just a bunch of people with acoustic guitars and Jenny and Jason singing live with a bunch of music stands because the chords were so hard to remember. And I think it was take two, maybe. And it was done. This one we did not play on the tour. And I had not heard it before the day we recorded it. It, re- it reminded me of how the Didn't It Rain session went, where, you know, it was just like me and Jason Molina and, you know, somebody else maybe just really um, spare. You know, we stand there with the, the, looking at the uh, lyric sheet and we sing it a few times together. Jason's singing was so unpredictable. And he also would change lyrics, too, like right before. And so I would have to, like, hurriedly scribble it out and put little arrows where he was sort of um, going up or down. So I just sort of, it really re- required a lot of focus to kind of keep up with him. What I remember is that I was using Jason's tailor. So he had this tailor that um, I think Secretly Canadian bought for him early on to like thank him for being a, an artist that was working for them. Um, and I, I ended up with that after Jason died. That is one of the I just cher- I ended up with it and I cherish it. So I have that guitar with me. And I remember um, Mike Brenner didn't have an acoustic dobro. So we I can't remember what it's called, but there's a it's like some Hawaiian nut slide nut thing. This he had this device where you can turn basically any acoustic guitar into a, a dobro. I know at different times, you know, we were trying to source local gear and maybe, you know, not be able to find the exact thing. But Brenner did have a a, a nut. Like a, a, a nut is for people who don't know is sort of a mechanical part of the guitar that um, allows the strings to go over a bend and still resonate. It goes up at the end by the tuners. And normally you want your your strings pretty low to your fretboard to make chords without having to clamp down and hurt your hand by pressing so hard. But with the dobro, you don't want the strings on the fretboard because it would buzz on the frets if your guitar is not made to be a slide guitar. So he could sort of pop this special nut in and make sort of any guitar a slide guitar. Featuring only his voice and guitar, the wonderful Hammer Down acts as an example of Melina's talent as both a songwriter and performer. We finished recording North Star Blues. We pack up 
the van, I guess, whatever we took to Chicago. And Mikey and Mark and Pete and me, I think maybe we took Mike Brenner to the airport and then we all drove back to Indiana. And Jason and Jenny are still at Electrical. And I think at this point they record the song that's the end, the, the last song on the record. Right before the session's over, Jason tells Steve, or I think from what I remember, the story is that Jason had written Hammer Down and was just like, hey, I've got an idea for a song. Do you mind if I put it on tape real quick? I think they set up a mic or two in the control room because I think we were, in, we were mixing at that point, I think. I mean, it was probably, just, well, I don't know if it was two mics or not, but it probably sort of mixed itself because, you know, it's Jason playing and singing. And it sounds great. Yeah, I remember we were just about done and he just went in and knocked out Hammer Down. And I remember being a little blown away by what an incredible song it was. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just terrific. None of us had ever heard it. He wrote it in the studio. Um, I didn't hear it until the until we got copies of the mixes. And I remember hearing it and thinking that it was just like, it's just like an amazing, it's like, wow, this is an amazing song. Why aren't we playing it? Like, I mean, not, 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 not like being upset about it, but like, how does he do this? The ending of Hammer Down has this little, real sweet, like three or four bar guitar outro. It's just really subtle and sweet. It's not fancy. And I doubt, since he wrote that song that morning, I doubt he really belabored, you know, working out that little outro part. But it's so cool and so pretty. And maybe he couldn't even play it that way again another day or later that day. And But the fact that he played it that way and it's captured and it's just so real and subtle and pretty. And the fact that he would... The fact that he would keep a take that maybe had some little, you know, human imperfections, but it had that magic, however he defined the magic. And I think being willing to keep it simple and real, knowing that all that emotion is in there and that it's got a little human frailty or whatever, um, and deliver it that way. I think that that takes some sort of um, respect for the music and for the listener. And it's not about this is the definitive version of this song and it needs to be polished to a T. And I guess keeping that amount of emotion and humanness in there is, is something I think he's really good at. Continuing the sparseness of the record's second half, and with the only accompaniment being that of Benford and acoustic guitar, Molina concludes what comes after the blues with the powerful, I cannot have seen the light. Again you're swinging low And you hit me below the bell All right, since it's a fair fight I'd say it's the best that I have felt In a long, long time In a long, long time Ooh. 
that was another one where we sort of figured out what we were going to do a half hour before actually recording it. And so, <laughs> you know, I wrote down the lyrics and sort of sang along with him and really had to kind of focus on um, keeping up with all the little changes he would make as he went along. That was one that was pretty easy to sing harmony on. I mean, he had me like singing a few lines kind of solo-ish and um, I don't know. I mean, I remember standing there and singing it with him and feeling like it was really um, a really powerful song. It was really funny earlier today, um, you know, listening to those songs again and listening to the different lines and watching and following along where, where I wrote the little arrows. And it really came back, like, and trying to get the phrasing right. I don't know. It just took me right back to that moment of recording that. You know, I think, you know, I was thinking about Hank Williams when I was singing that song. First time I remember hearing that song. Was it the first um, show that I played in Songs of Haya in December of 2002? That whole tour, we were covering I Saw the Light by Hank Williams. He wanted What Comes After the Blues, or said he wanted What Comes After the Blues to be sort of a concept record um, based on the idea of I Saw the Light and how, like, you know, the themes of that song, you know, of, like, redemption and an understanding of purpose were informing a lot of what he was thinking about and writing about. I cannot have seen the light is a response to the Hank Williams song, like, like a young man response to that, you know, like sort of like not petulant at all, but like sort of like demanding, like, I need to know how you could even believe that you did that, you know, like, you know, it goes along with the themes, a lot of the themes of Jason's other work of depression and darkness and things. Um, but I remember just, I mean, I remember hearing it and just, thinking it was amazing. I mean, I love that song. And I think it's such a strong closer. Him and Jenny singing together is wonderful. And then I think, I think it's like part, to me, it's part two of uh, Blue Chicago Moon from Didn't It Rain, where there's a moment in Blue Chicago Moon where Jason, I think the most powerful moment of singing in Jason's career, or maybe I could be wrong, but like where he sings uh, endless, 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 endless depression. It's like with the way the band is playing, it's just so powerful. But then he and Jenny come back and start to sing about how they'll try to beat it together. I think that I cannot have seen the light is like part two of that. With, in my opinion, it's it's just a part of Jason's canon of outwardly dealing with depression in um, in a way that he wouldn't in his personal life talking to us. Like I would hear about Jason's struggles through his lyrics. Most of the time he was just making jokes. So um, it's a very powerful and like, I mean, earnest, but not embarrassing. Like just a well-written piece of encouraging to other people who have, who are dealing with the issues he, did, he dealt with, I think. I, think. I don't know that he did that on purpose. Like this is going to help people. I think it was really just to, he had to do it. And so what a good recording. For the album art, the white outline of a bird is overlaid on an image of palm trees and wisteria. Ben Swanson is the one who put that artwork together. And 
if I recall correctly, it was like a postcard or something that Melina gave us. We couldn't really just use the image outright because <laughs> that's copyright infringement, but we definitely wanted to use that. Then I think we went to some craft store and got these little birds. So that's actually, that's like a three-dimensional bird that I think we scanned or somehow um, and then pieced it together. To me, it's not the most beautiful album art. I mean, it does, I don't know, it does the job. Yeah, they put a bird on it. It was that era, maybe. <laughs> to me, it doesn't speak to what is in the music, but that circle photo does have something melancholic about it that I guess fits. We had some promo versions of it, which were, I think, everything that was white. On the final one, it was black on the demo one. And I think I don't think we had vinyl that. We just had CD. So like, we sort of got used to that because we had some promo copies for a while, and then the white one came out. I think when we put the artwork together, there were – because, you know, Molina, for as particular he was about his, his art, his songs, mm. he was not so much about the album artwork. Maybe that was part of the business of the music that he didn't really care about. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, so I'm sure when it was put upon the label to create the album artwork that we had several versions of it and I'm sure there was a black version of it. Now that I'm looking at it, it would look pretty cool black. (laughs) (laughs) Following the record's completion in 2003, Magnolia Electric Company would continue their growth as a band through constant touring and working on new material. On April 5, 2005, Secretly Canadian releases What Comes After the Blues. I mean, we were on the road for 14 months, like with that record in the can, without the chance to sell that record. All of 2004, we were playing shows, and we were selling, I think we were still basically touring on the Magnolia Electric Company record. But the only material we were playing was was mostly from What Comes After the Blues, And then from the record that we would next make, which is called Nashville Moon. So by the time What Comes After the Blues is released, which is what, like April of 2005? It's like 15 months since we recorded it. And Jason is already almost a year ahead on playing material that people know. By the time we're touring on What Comes After the Blues, most of the material we're playing is from Nashville Moon, which we end up recording with Steve in July of 2005. What comes after the blues, like we had kind of forgotten that we made it and it came out. And I think that like there was, there was pretty mixed reviews, you know, like I think there were some really good ones. And then there were some people who just want, who wanted another songs, a higher record. We had a good, we had good publicists. Secretly Canadian was really behind the record. I always felt like it was not accepted as much as it should have. Um, you know, we released Trials and Errors, which is the live album um, right before this, which was kind of our primer um, without committing to a proper studio album. Like, here's this live album of Magnolia Electric Company. That album did really well, at least in terms of sales. So it was like, oh, this is really exciting. This could be something like this could be a big uptake in Molina's career. But yeah, I felt like like the critical reception of what comes after the blues was not as stellar as I thought it was going to be, considering that it had some of my favorite Melina songs on there. And, you know, of course, I was very close to it. it we, we were playing constantly. We were um, disappointing fans across the, the globe. 
we were making new fans across the globe with the new songs. Like for some people, they had no idea what the hell Songs of Ohio was. And like, this was a band for them. And, you know, for those of like all of us, we were in both. So like, it kind of felt like we were crossing over dimensions sometimes. And like, you know, but it, we were just always on tour. And I think we became like a band that people would come see three times a year because we were playing these songs that were open enough and they're all songs that can live change anytime you see them or hear them. 2005, when the both Trials and Errors and What Comes After the Blues came out that year, we were on tour for nine months that year. That was a cra- 2005 was insane. Like I got married that year and like was on tour up until two weeks before marriage. And then a week or two after we went back out, we really pushed it. And I think our willingness to promote that record was less about promoting the record and more like taking the opportunity afforded to us by making a record that was good to just go out and be a band. It made us a really, really good band, a really solid group of friends, a really solid group of musicians. By the time we recorded National Moon, which we did in, like I said, in Electrical 2, like that was just, it was all cut live. Like we were so good at it. I listened to it the other day. It is my favorite Magnolia Electric record. And I think it's because it just, you hear how much we were working. When people think of Magnolia Electric Company as a good band, it's because what comes after the blues gave us the, the door to open to practice and work to be that band. Starting with the release of what comes after the blues in 2005, the band would continuously release music up until 2009 with the release of Josephine. But in the period following the release of a collaborative album between Molina and Centromatic frontman Will Johnson later that same year, the songwriter's near decade and a half of consistently recording and releasing music, as well as touring, had stopped. It was later revealed that for some time, Melina had been struggling with an addiction to alcohol. We played a little show together in a record store with Bruce, who used to play in one of the earliest bands. I think it was just me and Bruce and Jason playing at this record store. And that was the last time I saw Jason. And I remember thinking that he did not look well. But I was unaware of his problem with alcohol. I didn't know that he was going through that really until he died, which was heartbreaking. I just didn't know that he was, he was going through that hell. And I just sort of lost touch with him in those years. I don't know. I, it never occurred to me in a million years that he would develop a problem like that. It's just so unbelievable. I just, I didn't see the decline the way his other band members did. I just wasn't around him for that at all. The problem was there, but the evidence of it was not not real prominent i guess there were like looking back there were little things but at the time those little things are normal being in a rock band in those early days i just didn't know why shows were tanking sometimes like especially in that first year it was 2004 where it really clicked like it's like oh jason's drinking like jason's getting drunk and the shows are failing and then there were you know like certain shows where it just like the show would suck like jason was out of tune he was too loud And eventually I started to realize that there was a pattern and that pattern was like, there was a lot of drinking before it. 
I mean, that was when I first thought, like, maybe he's got a problem. Like, maybe he doesn't know when to stop. The Hard to Love a Man session in Bloomington, I think, was one of the first, like, real obvious things for times when Molina was just all of a sudden acting really differently. We had two days of great recording, and then the third day, it was mixing day, and we all show up. Like, we're all there in the morning getting ready to mix and do overdubs. And then Jason went to the bathroom and came back from the bathroom and was totally changed, like was a totally different person. And I was like, this seems like a drunk person, but how could he have done it so fast? Over that year, we started to realize that he was doing it fast by drinking a ton of liquor really fast and then hiding it. And like all these clues came up later. So, you know, there were several shows on the European tour in 2005 for what comes after the blues. Jason was drinking a ton, but not all the time. There was a show in Vienna in on that 2005 tour where that was so bad, you know, and it's like it always corresponded with Jason having like a bottle of liquor and hiding it from us. He locked himself in a in a backstage room in Berlin on that tour and drank, I think, two whole bottles of champagne really fast. Like he was just sad. The dude was sad. He was looking for escapes and he wasn't telling us about it because I think he was ashamed. We were all thinking that there could be a larger problem, but we didn't really know the extent of it until 2005. At which point, like, he would kind of vacillate between good and bad. And then, like, after our friend Evan died, who uh, took over a position, took over base uh, when Pete Schreiner couldn't go on a tour in 2007, and then Evan um, died in a house fire that December, like, it all, it, it was just all pretty clear. We all, we all knew that there was something up. We didn't know, none of us really knew alcoholics. We knew that Jason was probably one. And um, he was doing a thing that alcoholics do in which they kind of lie to everybody who's trying to help them into kind of playing against one another. So like he, he would tell us that his wife hated us and like didn't want to talk to us. And he would tell his wife that we hated her. And that was like the connection we needed to help him get the help he needed. And we didn't really get it until late in our career, like in 2010, after we had, had been, like been off the road for eight months, I, you know, finally Darcy and I had a conversation. It was like, we need to help him. And she was like, I didn't think you guys were interested. And then we, we just unpacked it all. So I miss him terribly. And, you know, I don't know that he never really bought into, I don't, I, you know, he, it was hard. He was, he, he had, a, he had, he was, he had, he had his troubles and he, we we did all that we could. I don't know that he ever fully bought in to the fact that he could help himself. Being, you know, Jason being a close friend, he, he was sort of the closest I'd been to a person going through heavy alcoholism. Even though there were others in my life that had been affected by it. Having to learn firsthand, like, this is a disease. It's not about getting the person to make a decision. You can't make other people change. You can set up the circumstances to be a support. There are times when we were doing things to keep Molina from drinking, you know, like hiding the bottle and stuff like that, or being a distraction, being a person to talk to for the hour before the show, rather than letting him have a chance to go drink a bottle of booze. Um, and you can do that so much. And at some point you realize that, okay, that person's going to their house now. If they continue to drink tonight and die, I can't do anything about it, which is a really fucked up place to be. Um, but at some point you have to realize that you can't be responsible for that person all the time and something bad may happen and you may get that call tonight or next week. And in, in a sense, it's a way of, you know, releasing some of that tension 
but at the same time, it's not easy and not you can't put it out of your mind. Sadly, on March 16th, 2013, Melina dies of organ failure at the age of 39. The remarkable body of work that he was able to produce during his brief life exemplifies his immense talent as an artist. And one of the true strengths of this body of work are the people Molina surrounded himself with that were able to contribute to the type of enrichment and care his music deserved. In the many years since first collaborating on what comes after the blues, Jason Molina's friends and bandmates remain grateful to have had the opportunity to work on something so special. Some time has passed, and I'm listening to this record again. I still think it's one of his strongest records. It opens up with one of the most recognizable riffs with the, the Dark Don't Hide It. Again, those songs, Leave the City, Hard to Love a Man. Hard to Love a Man, I think, is a fantastic song. You know, that's to everyone in his life, to his wife, to his bandmates, to his label. That song kind of hits me hard when I listen to it. It almost seems like an apology song. And then, uh, yeah, North Star Blues and Hammer Down. It's like it definitely has some classic song. Um, yeah, I think it's definitely an underappreciated album in his catalog. I love what comes after the blues. I mean, part of it for me is you become very close to people you play music with and especially tour with. And when I hear that record, I just, it's just um, just so full of happy memories of hanging out with that whole band who are just incredibly lovely people. I don't know. It just, it, it just takes me back to the people on that record. It's just such a gift to be around that group of people. And so when I hear that record, I just, I think about all of us as a group. And, you know, this, of course, the songs are so good. This record's funny to me because I, I feel like it's, uh, it's maybe not as well known um, as some of the other ones. And Jason's fans are so devoted and, and he just he just has lived on his music has just really held up so well over the years. But you know, and I've I've done several interviews for, you know, other people for this or that, but no one has asked about this record, which has always been kind of funny to me, just because I think it's so great. I feel like it's maybe um, not as appreciated as it should be. I think it's a good record. It's it's interesting to think about it, you know, as a transitional record. Um, I don't think about it necessarily as a group effort. Like I, like Josephine, I really feel like was a group effort. Nashville Moon was more so. So it's 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 cool when I think about it as that progression in the life of the band. It's neat, and I'm glad that it's sort of you know half electric, half sort of acousticy. Um, and maybe like 70s sort of singer-songwriter record would totally be this, half rock arrangements, half solo stuff. And I wouldn't even think twice about it. This was the Magnolia Electric Company, which in my mind was more of a band versus Songs Ohio. So in those ways, you know, I'd, I'd rather have it be all all band tracks or something or more representative of the band. But that really doesn't matter. The songs are cool. And it was that transition. So it, I think it, it really makes sense as how it is. Um, I appreciate it a lot versus maybe loving to listen to every second of it. 
as much as I do other records. But part of that, you know, that's part of that's me bringing to it um, the emotions of being in the band at the time and how not it being a new band and not really, I don't know, having a perspective of it from an insider point of view that now I, I can look at it more as an outsider. I think when it came out, I was a little confused by how it turned out, given how much other stuff that we recorded for it and like what the tenor of the band was at the time. But in retrospect, like I'm just looking at the track list here. Like I feel like Jason made some good sequencing decisions here. I think it's like classically like the, the side one being the rockers and side two being like, like a little, like a, a whole other record to itself. That's not a bad idea. I feel like it was a relief when it came out as well as it did. And now when I listen to it, um, I think we made something pretty good. Like as, as far as like a statement about, um, well, the band's different now and it's going to sound like this. I feel like we kind of laid down what the foundations for this band would be from then on. And, um, you know, I think it's a transitional record for Jason too. So him being, um, you know, alone at the end of it is sort of like a farewell to the the past of him being the only person in the band and then um you know it's like the first part is like here's an introduction to what we're doing now and here's me saying goodbye to what it was putting this record together was the reason that we started working as hard as we did and we got to see how we all worked so this record is us becoming the band and so for that reason alone i think it's a good one i think the songs there's so many good songs on here and especially side one, side one is kind of, um, I mean, even, even if you take Jenny's song away, like dark, don't hide it, leave the city and hard to love a man are Magnolia classics and like just really great songs. And night shift lullaby is a really nice, I mean, it, it works perfectly inside of it. Yeah. I think we did a good job. I'm glad that we made it. Yeah. I think this is a good way to open up Magnolia. And I think that like, if this is something that people like, I think they should seek out Nashville moon, which came out in the Sojourner box set, because that is truly what that is the reward that this record began the reaping of. That's where we're like just a, a band. And, um, and I think that, you know, with Josephine, where we were all like really contributing in the studio, that's sort of, that's the representation of us as, like friends and collaborators, whereas this record and Nashville Moon is us like coming together to be that band. So it's, I mean, while the personalities and the brotherhood and stuff is is part of this, um, I think Nashville Moon is where it's like, well, that's a band, and Josephine is like, those are friends who really love making music together. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Jenny Benford, Jonathan Cargill, Pete Schreiner, and Jason Evans-Groth for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy what comes after the blues and more from Molina's discography at jasonmolina.com, various streaming platforms, and secretlycanadian.com. If you wanted to hear the whole story on Molina, I highly recommend Aaron Osmond's wonderful biography, Jason Molina, Riding with a Ghost. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.